a newlywed dies in bizarre fashion in Palo Alto, California. The evidence points to it being a ritualistic, maybe even satanic, cult killing. However, all the leads the police get go nowhere. Until DNA technology finally gives detectives the break they're looking for. 44 years later. podcast about bad things welcome 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 to yet another episode of the kmh podcast this is brad how are y'all doing out there i hope everyone's staying safe staying clean and i hope everyone takes a moment to thank all the frontline folks we know who are dealing with this nasty virus out there it has to be exhausting and they should know that we appreciate their efforts Before we get into today's episode, a brief word of warning. The murder in this case is a little bit gruesome. I don't want to wallow in the gory details, of course, but they have to be mentioned for you get a full context of the story. And this may not be the best episode to listen to with young ones around, but that being said, I'll give a warning before we get anything too out of whack. All right, Arliss Perry was a young newlywed, yet to reach the age of 20, living in Palo Alto, California. She was a receptionist at a law firm while her husband, Bruce, studied pre-med at Stanford. They were, of course, high school sweethearts who married in August of 1974 in Bismarck, North Dakota, their hometown. They lived on campus. Arliss was described as being very compassionate, open, and kind, She was also considered a bit too trusting and naive. She, in fact, had never left her hometown prior to moving to Palo Alto with Bruce. On one October evening, the young lovers had a bit of a squabble over car tires, of all things, during a walk around campus. Arliss decided she needed some time to reflect and pray and split from her husband to visit the Stanford Memorial Church during their walk. It was only half a mile from their home, and she left at approximately 11.30 p.m. Two other people, who left shortly after Arliss arrived, reported that she sat in the front row to the left of the altar. Security guard Stephen Crawford reported that he locked the church up a little after midnight as no one was inside. He claims he walked through and shouted that he was closing before locking the doors just to ensure the church was empty. At some point during the night, someone who was passing by allegedly reported hearing an odd sound coming from the church, but no further details were ever provided. Around 3 a.m., Bruce got nervous and called the police to report that his wife was missing. When the police went to investigate the church, they found it locked. The next morning, at around 5.45 a.m., Crawford, the security guard, opened the church and made his morning rounds. Upon entering the church, he noticed something odd near the altar. As he approached, he realized it was a body. Here's the gory detail, so earmuff the little ones, okay? The body was Arliss's. She was found lying face up. 
She had an ice pick sticking out of the back of her head behind her left ear, though the handle had been broken off. She demonstrated signs of strangulation and had been beaten. She was naked from the waist down and had a long altar candle shoved in between her legs. A second altar candle was placed between her breast. Her arms were manipulated in such a way so that she was holding it. Some people reported that she was found with her legs specifically laid in a diamond shape, though the crime scene photos don't support this contention. Others say it wasn't her legs specifically, but her jeans that had been removed were laid to make this shape. Okay, that's it for the gory detail, so we can take the earmuffs off. Now, Bruce and the security guard were naturally both questioned. Crawford claimed that he locked the church doors around midnight, checked to make sure they were still locked around 2 in the morning, then opened up the church at 5.45 when he discovered the body. Crawford did note that one of the doors he had locked appeared to have been forced open from the inside when he went to open the church that morning. Police theorized the door was forced open after the police came by to check on the building around 3 a.m. after receiving Bruce's call, but before Crawford had opened the doors at 5.45. So that gave us a very narrow window to look for suspects. As for Bruce, when the police arrived to question him at his home, they found him covered in blood. Suppressing their desire to immediately arrest him, they asked some questions and learned that Bruce claimed he was subject to chronic nosebleeds, and that's why he looked like a mess. Regardless, they still took him down to the station and gave him a polygraph test, which he passed. They also tested the blood he was covered in and confirmed that it was, in fact, his. So that was a sitcomishly bad time to have a nosebleed for poor Bruce. During the investigation, police determined Arliss was killed by the blow from the ice pick. Police found two important clues at the scene. The first was a partial palm print on the candle that had been inserted into Arliss. And the second was some DNA evidence found on a pillow near Arliss's body. Despite this, there was no evidence that Arliss had ever been raped. Neither the palm print nor the DNA sample matched either Bruce or Crawford. Police were also unable to find a link to Arliss's murder and a series of three other murders that had occurred on campus within the past year. As the investigation continued, police determined that seven people had entered the church during the time near Arliss's death. Two were Arliss and Crawford, obviously. Four others were eventually identified and ruled out as well. However, the seventh remained a bit more elusive. All they could learn about him was he was around 5'10", medium build, with sandy blonde hair, a blue shirt, and no watch, as described by two people who saw Arliss enter the church. As far as we know, this mystery man was never identified. 
During a memorial service held for Arliss in Palo Alto, many of Arliss's co-workers from the law firm she worked at attended. One in particular was surprised to see that Bruce was at the memorial. Not that she was surprised Arliss's husband was there, but because Arliss had introduced her to Bruce and this wasn't the same man. The other Bruce had last visited Arliss at work the day before she was murdered, and the two had something between a serious, intense conversation. How did this coworker describe the other Bruce? Well, I'm glad you asked. About 5'10", medium athletic build, sandy blonde hair, you know, just like the mystery man who is never identified at the church. Okay, now the biggest theory surrounding Arliss's death is that it was some sort of ritualistic, possibly satanic killing. This is fueled by the condition of her body and the fact that her legs or blue jeans were laid in a specific manner to form what is an allegedly demonic symbol. Uh, and there's a very intricate theory about how this assassination went down, which, of course, we're going to talk about. Apparently, and shockingly to a Southerner like me, Bismarck, North Dakota, had a rather robust cult community during Arliss's youth. While she was in high school, she ran into three men who were dressed as priests, but with red collars rather than white, which is really spooky to me, and I don't know why. They invited Arliss to attend their quote-unquote church, which may have been the process church of the final judgment, according to award-winning investigative journalist Maury Terry. This cult claimed they were teaching positive Christianity as opposed to the negative Christianity taught by traditional organized religions. The positive Christians were expected to be active preachers who fought against institutionalized Judaism and came to realize the true Jehovah who desired the empowerment of the impress. They wanted civilization to end as they believed that was the only way to provide equality on earth. Arliss attended some of these meetings but took issue with the teachings. First, she questioned their use of scriptures taken out of context. Apparently, they would do a thing where they would quote a passage from, say, Matthew, and then focus on a phrase from that passage and go find it being used in the book of Job and use that to explain a point that wasn't evident from the plain meaning of the passage in Matthew. She also took the time to research many of the historical claims made by the leaders of this church. It seems like Arliss even went so far to take over a meeting one night and confronted the group about their misleading teachings and then preached her own understanding of God's word. Arliss was told she was being ostracized by the group after that, shockingly, but the spunky girl would not be stopped. She continued to show up to their meetings and proved to be rather disruptive. 
At one point, she was placed on a list of powerful, suppressive people, a term borrowed from Scientology, as apparently this process church was a splinter off from Scientology. And as a suppressive person, Arliss was needed to be eliminated as quickly as possible. A man by the name of Bill Mincer was selected to perform the task, allegedly. Mincer left Bismarck and traveled to California, where he located who he believed to be Arliss, but could not be certain because the picture he was given showed Arliss without glasses and with wavy hair. However, the girl he found had straight hair, and wore glasses every day. So two members of the Bismarck cult had to fly out to California to confirm it was Arliss. The day before she was murdered, she was seen having an intense conversation with one of these men. I could not find a description of this man, but the circumstances suggest it may be the same man Arliss described as Bruce to her co-workers, Although it is odd that if she's been in a battle with these people before, that she would pass them off when questioned as her husband to her co-workers. So that part of the story seems a little fishy to me. So back to our theory. Not our theory. The theory we're being given. When Arlos was alone in the church that October night, the killer attacked. I say killer because there's no evidence if Mincer was one of the killers, if the other two men participated, how it went down exactly. So we'll just say killer. It's a good catch-all. Allegedly, the way it went down was the killer beat and strangled Arliss, then offered her a choice. He pulled out a small tape recorder and told her that if she would blaspheme, he would spare her a painful death. Arliss refused the offer, so the killer resumed beating and torturing her. After several more minutes, he again pulled out the tape recorder and offered her the same choice. She responded only by stating, God loves you too. Angered, the killer allegedly stated he couldn't save you from the power of Satan, then murdered her in a ritualistic way. Apparently, the arrangement of the body, coupled with how her blue jeans were laying upon her, made a symbol known as the witch's sign. The chalk outline in the crime photos I found do not support this description of her body being in such a position when she was discovered. However, the outline would not cover how her jeans were laying. Now, many lay people in the area, and even the reverend of the Stanford Church, immediately suspected she was a victim of satanic cult slaying. Those rumors slowly spread back to Bismarck. Now, keep in mind, this occurred shortly before the U.S. was in the total grips of its mass satanic panic, which culminated around 1980. And this also occurs shortly after we have the Manson family murders. So folks were willing to embrace some pretty wild stuff involving how crimes were committed. Going back to Maury Terry, the investigative journalist, 
wrote a book called The Ultimate Evil that is about satanic killings. And apparently chapter one is all about Arliss. John Martinson was a former psychology professor at Bismarck State College. And he believed that people in Bismarck were responsible for Arliss's death. Martinson reported that when Arliss's in-laws were informed that Arliss had been trying to convert certain cult members to Christianity, they became visibly shaken. The in-laws, again, this is Bruce's mom and dad, later publicly stated that they believed Arliss was a member of the satanic cult and was sacrificed for upsetting the leadership. How comforting would that be to lose your spouse and then have your parents come out and say, oh yeah, they, yeah, all about Satan. The demon theory here didn't really pass the smell test to the police, and they didn't do a whole lot of work on it. Though the case never officially went cold or was ever closed, police were soon out of leads. That was until 1979, five years later, when David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the serial killer known as the Son of Sam, admitted knowing about Arliss's death. One of his letters mentioned how Arliss was stalked and hunted. When questioned by investigators, Berkowitz admitted he had spoken with the man who committed the act, whom he referred to as Manson II. Ultimately, investigators determined Berkowitz truly knew nothing about this case and dismissed his statements. And thus we enter another lull in the case. Now, Berkowitz didn't just make statements. He sent weird things like, writing about Arliss's death in the margins of books on uh, witchcraft and other occult subjects. It, it was really bizarre, but he's kind of a weird dude, so what do you expect? So not a whole lot happens from 1979 to 1992. And really, the only thing of note that happens in 92 is the security guard, Stephen Crawford, was arrested and fired from Stanford because it was found that he was looting statutes and rare books from the university. And this had been occurring since the, sometime in the 70s. He never tried to sell the books, even though they were worth thousands of dollars, and same with the statutes and other memorabilia. But this arrest put him back on law enforcement's radar regarding Arliss's murder, and law enforcement began keeping close tabs on Crawford as well as other witnesses they had identified to Arliss's slaying. Essentially what happened is every couple of years, the police would go out and talk to these witnesses again just to see if they remembered anything new. Again, this is a story with good police work in it, and so they deserve a round of applause from everybody. Meanwhile, Bruce Perry went on to become a rather well-known psychiatrist who specialized in childhood trauma. He was actually involved in high-profile cases in America, such as the Columbine school shooting, the Oklahoma City bombing, and the siege in Waco, Texas. He has 
adamantly refuse to ever publicly discuss Arliss's death. Now, likely due to his rather prestigious career, law enforcement were not as aggressive in keeping an eye on Dr. Perry as they were Crawford. Now, as technology progressed, the partial handprint and the DNA sample law enforcement still had from the night of Arliss's death were periodically retested just in the hopes of gaining a little bit more information, maybe something that could help crack the case. And this continued for years. It continued until 2016, when their persistence finally paid off. These new DNA testing methods gave investigators a ton more information to work with, but it also required them to go hunt down all these witnesses from 1974 to try to match or exclude them from the case. Again, they had been doing that to the degree they could since the mid-90s, but now they actually had to make sure they covered everybody. They also made it a point to get to Bruce Perry and Stephen Crawford as quickly as they could. Now, eventually, in 2018, they completed this task. They had found everybody and tested them, and the evidence they gathered pointed conclusively to one person as being the provider of that DNA sample. Now, when police went to execute their search and arrest warrant, they were initially denied entry into the house as the man claimed he needed to put some clothes on. After waiting for what felt like far too long, the officers forced their way into the home, only to be immediately greeted by a gunshot. Obviously, they quickly backed out and assessed the situation and soon realized the bullet was not meant for them. As they cautiously entered the bedroom, they found their suspect dead from a single gunshot wound to the head. Police would never get to question Stephen Crawford about the murder he committed. They searched his apartment after the coroner removed his body. It was very sparsely furnished, but there were a few items of interest law enforcement took note of. One was that Ultimate Evil book by Mari Terry we discussed earlier. But he didn't have the whole book. He just had the cover that had been ripped off from the book. The police also found a suicide note Crawford had written two years ago. The timing seems to have coincided with his last visit to speak with detectives about the case. Many speculate he was feeling like his time as a free man was short when he wrote the note, but he never acted on it, at least immediately. I've tried to find information about what the note said, but all I could really dig up is that nowhere in it does it mention the murder of Arliss, and that detectives have described it as rambling. Though the case will never result in a conviction, police obviously consider this matter to be closed. Now, we will never know why Crawford committed the murder. We'll never know why he did it in a way that left such cultish overtones. 
There's no evidence I could find that Crawford was involved in any cults. And lots of rumors online suggest that the police found nothing that would fall into the occult category when they searched his apartment. I think we can safely dismiss the satanic killing theory. Unless we want to accept that he was just some schlep hired by the Satanists to do their dirty work. Which would be very disappointing. You think a group that committed to being evil would want to get their hands dirty, but I digress. So let's do some speculation, shall we? Why would someone want to make a killing look like it was cultish or ritualistic or satanic in nature? I think there's two answers to this. The first is obvious. They are a Satanist, and that's just what they do. Second, however, is it could be a tactic used to throw police off the trail. In my experience working with the law enforcement I've worked with, and this is not an indictment, this is not a criticism, but they are apt to developing a profile for a suspect and sticking to it far too long. It's almost as if there's an inability to admit that they're wrong during the course of an investigation. It really is like moving a mountain to get them to consider a different angle. But again, I say this as a former criminal defense attorney who is the police's natural enemy. Once they've settled on in a suspect's description, some will put on blinders, especially if the description of the suspect matches what they are thinking the criminal should look like. So if there's a terrorist attack and they get some evidence pointing to someone of Middle Eastern descent, that's who they're going to look for. If there's a crack deal gone bad and someone points to be on the lookout for young black males, they're going to eat that up. If there's some sort of computer crime, they're going to be looking for a younger, white, nerdy male. Again, I don't say this as a criticism. I just say this is my experience. To pile on to this, and I love this story, so I have to share it. When I was in college, I took several forensics classes. And I had a professor who one time told us that if we ever needed to kill somebody, so he was giving us some real-life pro tips here, after the deed was done, he suggested we pull down the victim's pants and shove a carrot up their butt. His reasoning? Well, if you do something like that, the police would have a field day working on the motive and not as much time looking for a suspect. I don't know how much I buy of that, but any chance to tell a story about a carrot up somebody's butt, I'm going to take advantage of. Personally, I'm curious why Crawford continued to live his normal day-to-day -day life if he felt like the police were slowly closing in on him. Since his suicide note was two years old, this has been on his mind for a spell, obviously. One would think that it would have been easier for him to start 
looking for a new place to live, maybe outside the state of California, so he wouldn't be quite as easy a catch. But, you know, by the same token, maybe it's not worth the effort of trying to delve into the mind of a murderer, uh, especially one as smart as this guy. I mean, one thing I didn't mention is when they went through his stuff, they found that he had a degree from Stanford. It was forged. He had never attended the university, but I don't know anybody with a forged degree from Stanford, so he may be a genius among all of us. I also want to take a moment to give a shout-out to Bismarck. I honestly had no idea you were such a terrifying place to live. And I will now make sure that I never, ever, ever set foot there, lest I risk getting swallowed up by some sort of Cthulian cult. God bless all you people in North Dakota. Okay, now it's time for us to do our deed and get on to the palate cleanser. Now, unlike last week, you're going to have to deal with me reading it this week. And I apologize. Here we go. What is purple and 5,000 miles long? Purple and 5,000 miles long. Why, of course, it's the Grape Wall of China. And with that, we can tie a pretty little bow on this episode. It was fun. See us again sometime. Say next week. In the meantime, if you like the work we're doing here, the single best thing you can do to help our tiny show grow is to throw us some stars and leave us a nice little review, especially on iTunes. That's how podcasts like us can bob to the surface where others can see against all these giant corporate, massively funded other podcasts. So that's the one thing you need to do. And tell your friends. Don't forget that. So, you know, those are those are the two best things you can do. Well, and, and subscribing helps if you want to subscribe. That that somehow plays into the algorithms. I don't know how. So, so just those three things will do. And if you're willing to do all this, I'll try to remember to leave you something in my will. It may not be anything great, like just a pair of socks, but... They'll be interesting socks. They'll have bananas on it or, or pugs or something like that. Okay. Well, again, everyone, please stay safe. Thank you for listening. Again, if you know any nurses, doctors, custodians, sanitation workers, or other folks on the front lines of this disease war we're fighting, you know, buy them a milkshake or bake them a pound cake. Let them know that we all appreciate what they're doing. We love them, just like I love all of y'all. Okay, well, it's time for me to shake, little rattlesnake. So Brad is out. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.